When I was a kid, there wasn't much concern about concussion. If you fell or hit your head, we'd look for blood, but if you didn't break the skin, we were told to shake it off and keep going. Even as an adult back in those days, if you were hit by a falling brick or a car or were playing sports, you were pretty much told to go put ice on it and get back to work as soon as you could. In the last decade, though, the diagnosis of traumatic brain injury, or TBI, has gotten a lot more serious. TBI was diagnosed in nearly 3 million Americans in 2013. On average, about 20,000 armed service members receive traumatic brain injury every year. About 5.3 million Americans live their lives trying to manage the symptoms that come with an unresolved brain injury. That's a lot of people. To a great degree, we're talking about TBI so much now because of the roadside bombs used in Iraq. Roadside bombs were a new tactic in Iraq that, in addition to taking lives, often injured soldiers in ways that we only found out later to be brain injuries. Veterans across the country struggled daily with intense symptoms from this brain trauma. We've also been talking about TBI more because of the NFL. Football players are coming forward to talk about how repeated concussions from tackling can develop into an array of brain injuries. Even common folk like me get brain injuries. I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury back in 2011 after a car accident. I was lucky that mine was pretty mild, but I still experienced migraines, nausea, dizziness, vertigo, loss of memory, and exhaustion. There's a new way to treat traumatic brain injuries that some neuroscientists believe will help resolve many of these cases. Microdosing cannabis to support the endocannabinoid system, while also microdosing psilocybin, the active molecule in hallucinogenic mushrooms, promises to help in the recovery of brain injury by giving the brain what it needs to heal, rebuild, and reorient itself. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right into your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. You may remember Dr. Russo from Shaping Fire episode 11 when we talked about the phytocannabinoids and terpenes in cannabis. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor at GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He is now medical director at Phytex. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Massachusetts Medical School before residencies in pediatrics in Phoenix, Arizona, and in child and adult neurology at the University of Washington, Seattle. He was a clinical neurologist in Missoula, Montana for 20 years in a practice with a strong chronic pain component. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He joined GW as a full-time consultant in 2003. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Russo about treating brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms. Welcome back to the show, Ethan. 
Thank you so much. So during the introduction, I described what a traumatic brain injury is and some of its symptoms. But one thing that we know about injury is that, you know, symptoms are usually the result of an, an unbalancing of one or more of the body systems. So how does a traumatic brain injury impact the body systematically? Well, it's uh, pretty encompassing, I'm afraid. First, I would like to define a couple of things. Uh, in the classic sense, a concussion used to refer to uh, a head injury in which there was loss of consciousness. We now know that that is not necessary to have a post-concussive syndrome. So you can have all the symptoms of a concussion without ever observably losing consciousness. So that's one thing that needs to be made clear. Um, and it is true that there is some correlation between the length of unconsciousness, if it occurs, and how bad or how prolonged the post-traumatic syndrome will be afterwards. But these things do vary a great deal. Um, concussion, of course, involves the brain, which is our most delicate uh, body system, also one of the most metabolically active at any given point something like 20 percent of the blood flow from the heart is going to the brain and that's far out of proportion to its weight compared to the rest of the body so it is our most important organ and obviously it is the uh, area from which our personality and all the aspects of our being derives uh, so very important in that respect. Um, it is also a situation in which the balance in the brain is, is critical. And this is where the endocannabinoid system comes in because its function really is to maintain that homeostasis, that balance, uh, which is so critical, critical to proper functioning so that we can think relate to other people, do our jobs, and all of those things that are involved in daily life. So when, when, the, when the brain has that impact, what is the experience of the brain? Um, you know, we, we kind of just talk, oh, the brain is swe swelling, but I don't know if that's actually always the case. Is, it, is, the, is the actual damage that takes place, is it more than likely a swelling of the brain, a bruising of the brain, or, or a combination of that and more? Well, it can be any of those things. First, let's picture a situation, the proverbial bowl of jello. That is the consistency of the brain in life. And so we have essentially what amounts to a bowl of jello that is in this rigid container that we call the skull. And so when it gets hit, or specifically when there's a sudden uh, deceleration, like in a whiplash where there may not be any actual contact to the head, this is thrown forward, thrown back, and it's easy to understand how this would be highly disruptive to the delicate fibers within. So, in some instances, if we do a high-level scan of the brain, like an MRI, we may not see signs of swelling or bleeding, but 
certainly in the more serious injuries, uh, there may be what's called a brain contusion. That's medical ease for bruising. Uh, and this would look like a series of tiny little hemorrhages on the surface of the brain. Um, or there may be overt bleeding uh, when larger blood vessels are broken. So it can be a continuum all the way from seeing no overt anatomical change to seeing gross evidence of damage. Uh, and any of those things may be possible. Let's talk about the, the, the ones that don't show a lot of damage. Um, so, so if you're not seeing the, if, if you're not seeing the bruising or, or ripping or um, things like that, is it, is the impact that the, of, of, from the concussion, is it, is it merely a chemical change of some sort that is um, causing what, what we consider, what we consider some of the, you know, more common symptoms of a light concussion, things like vertigo and migraines. Um, if it's not physical damage, what causes those, those symptoms to happen? Well, I guess that uh, the bottom line is we would call it an electrochemical disturbance of the brain. In other words, if we're not seeing overt anatomical changes, uh, bearing in mind that a scan has only uh, so much resolution, obviously if we had the ability to look at things microscopic, microscopically in the living person, uh, there might be changes that are evident. Uh, but, you know, for the victim of this, uh, I'm afraid it's a, a more a scientific argument that's not helpful uh, to the patient. The patient may be reassured by medical personnel at the emergency room, for example, that, look, your CAT scan was normal and you should get better at a time when they feel dreadful. And that can persist for prolonged periods of time. Concussion is one of those things where the patient may walk, may talk, look okay uh, to their friends and family members, but only the people closest to them may be aware of the degree of impairment, which can be considerable, even in the cases where there is no visible damage on the tests that have been done. Right on. That makes sense. And that also gets us to where I was hoping we were going, which is if, if this is an electrochemical change, that makes a lot of sense why the interplay with the endocannabinoid system uh, can be so effective and acute, right? Because yes. um, th th that's, the, that's the realm of the ECS. Yes. Let me give you an example. Um, the main uh, stimulatory neurotransmitter in the brain is called glutamate. Uh, so you need this for proper communication in the brain. But as in so many instances, there can be too much of a good thing. Under conditions of insults to the brain, whether it be strokes or head injury, there tends to be a release of glutamate to an excessive degree. Um, on the one hand, this can drive pain, neuropathic pain, uh, and make it persist. In its worst forms, however, uh, the glutamate excess can be so great that it causes what's called an excitotoxicity. The excito is an excitatory neurotransmitter, glutamate. The toxicity is that it actually can produce death of brain cells um, that were 
perhaps marginally damaged in the injury, but not dead yet. Mm. In the days after a head injury, these can actually succumb. Um, and so it is a, a serious uh, problem initially, but one that looks worse uh, after the passage of a short amount of time. That makes sense too. They're always saying that you know after you have a concussion to watch somebody for a while because um, you, the, the symptoms may not show up right away. And so if they've got continually actively dying cells, they may actually be experiencing lessening a lessening of functioning. You know, for a couple of days after the actual um, you know trauma happened. Yes, certainly that can happen. Mm -hmm. The other reason that people need to be watched after a head injury is uh, there can be delayed bleeding. Uh, for example, the development of a subdural hematoma, that is blood between the dura covering of the brain and the brain itself. This is particularly dangerous in elderly people uh, where it can come on slowly and there'll be a very sudden deterioration that requires uh, very rapid intervention. One of the other um, immediate impacts that I saw while doing my <clears throat> research for the show today was something that I'd never actually seen before, people with two different size pupils. And it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see photographs of. Um, just as kind of a side, um, what causes that to happen? Well, uh, the situation I just mentioned, the subdural hematoma is infamous for doing that. Um, so it indicates uh, damage on one side. On if this has not been present before and suddenly appears acutely, uh, it's a reason to get them to an emergency room expeditiously. Right on. So PTSD is often associated with uh, traumatic brain injuries and is you know treated similarly, at least now it is. Do the symptoms from PTSD seem to arise from the, the unbalancing of these same systems? Do they essentially have the same cause or, or do they have their own source? Well, you can have one, you can have the other, you can have both together. And certainly, um, I guess the classic situation where you'd have both uh, would be in a battlefield situation where someone is concussed by an explosion um, and uh, has that coupled with PTSD due to the sheer emotion and terror of the incident. So the more violent uh, the circumstances surrounding the head injury, the more likely there is to be concomitant or comorbid uh, PTSD with it. So you and I have talked about um, the endocannabinoid system a lot and, and, and the different experiences that uh, patients will have that, that CBD is called for. And it's really interesting to go down the common um, symptoms of PTSD because they're, they're almost exactly the same as everything that we would recommend CBD for. Uh, memory fragmentation, flashbacks, disassociation, um, hyperactive fight or flight, even hypervigilance. These are all the same kinds of things that, that we would offer CBD to a patient for to help them relax their, their signaling systems and kind of rebalance them. It, it sounds to me like, like this, these are all in the same pot of symptoms and, and by, by attempting to do our best to rebalance them, um, we can kind of take care of them as a group. 
Well, I think there's a lot of truth there. Of course, um, there are similarities and differences. Um, in concussion, one of the cardinal symptoms is uh, some degree of memory loss, um, whereas in PTSD, it is uh, hypervigilance to memory. Uh, so on, in PTSD, uh, it is helpful to have some THC present. Uh, this helps the person adjust, distance them, themselves from the traumatic event. Additionally, uh, one of the cardinal symptoms of PTSD is intrusive dreams or nightmares. One of the effects of THC is to suppress our REM sleep, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep associated with dreaming. And although that sounds radical, uh, there's not much danger with the amount of REM suppression from THC, but certainly this is helpful in reducing those intrusive dreams uh, from which PTSD patients suffer. Uh, but beyond that, absolutely, uh, cannabidiol uh, can be of great benefit in either post-concussive syndrome or post-traumatic syndrome um, because of its ability to serve as an anti-anxiety agent, uh, an antipsychotic agent. Additionally, its benefits on pain and inflammation and its overall neuroprotective effect. In both instances, we are talking about damage uh, to the brain and having a neuroprotective agent uh, certainly uh, could be of benefit in these situations. And uh, historically, that is what we see when patients pursue this kind of treatment. Before we move forward, I want to double back because you said something that, that um, threw up a flag for me. You said that um, THC tends to be a, um, a dream suppressant, if you will. Um, working with patients, you know, I get anecdotal evidence all the time that when somebody starts taking, um, say, for example, a, uh, uh, an indica tincture to help them uh, get to sleep and stay asleep more, um, it's not uncommon to hear them come back and say, oh, my, my dreams are so much more epic and, and creative sometimes. Is there, is there a second is there a second aspect of, of taking the THC which could also lead to dreams or is it really just dream suppression and that unique patient, you know, has got something unknown going on? Right. Well, if we look at EEGs, electroencephalograms, uh, recording the brain waves, we do see a suppression. This might uh, diminish over the usage. And um, sometimes people just become more aware of their dreams in certain situations. And so it, it's hard to say in a given instance uh, what might be operative. Yeah, fair enough. So PTSD is often thought of as a psychological issue, but you know the studies show that the hippocampus is damaged by extreme stress as well. If there's no physical impact directly to the hippo hippocampus, for example, maybe you you take you know um, trauma from a blunt object on the other side of your head, um, that must means that it must be a chemical impact. Is is this kind you know what kind of a chemical electrical impact can actually cause physical damage in the hippocampus well again it's really hard to say and we've got this mismatch between imaging studies which may be negative for showing any visible damage but yet 
functionally, uh, the patient is, is definitely having problems that we can trace to that area of the brain. Uh, I'm afraid even in the 21st century, our tools are not always terrific. Um, actually, beyond scans, uh, this is a situation where EEGs, brainwave uh, tests, are more sensitive than the imaging, and most sensitive of, of all are psychometric tests. These would be uh, the advanced tests of memory, emotion, etc., that are done by a neuropsychologist over the course of many hours. Uh, but that is a very involved, expensive process. Uh, certainly, people that have suffered uh, these kinds of traumas uh, may benefit from that kind of investigation. Uh, initially at baseline and then, say, six months down the road to look at the degree of recovery that might have occurred. So in the in the next two sets, we're going to talk about using uh, cannabis as a treatment and also psilocybin as a treatment. Um, but before we go into those, I just want to do a quick review of what are the traditional treatments for a TBI as, as it's done today? And... Um, um, you know, wh where do you think that they're they're missing? They're missing all they can do, which kind of brings up this conversation of cannabis and psilocybin as as new and old treatments. Right. Well, I'm afraid that uh, the current uh, armamentarium of conventional drugs uh, for treating uh, traumatic brain injury is not very effective. Uh, can run the range. Uh, a lot of the symptomatology is similar to migraine, and so migraine preventive drugs are often used, but uh, if anything, post-traumatic headaches are harder to treat than garden variety migraines, but these could include uh, the tricyclic antidepressant drugs like amitriptyline. It can include a whole variety of uh, Anticonvulsant drugs, uh, they're also used sometimes to treat migraine preventively, uh, but these are not uh, uniformly effective at all. Uh, additionally, people may try non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, which are probably familiar to everybody, but are associated with side effects like um, heartburn or, or worse, ulcers, even heart attacks and strokes. Um, I'm afraid they haven't been uh, tremendously effective. Um, beyond that, in terms of the dizziness and brain fog, uh, these kinds of things, they're often very, very poorly treated. Um, it is a situation where alternative medicine can often do better. Uh, when I was in practice, I employed a lot of these agents, uh, such as uh, using a chelated magnesium, that has a calming influence on the brain, particularly in uh, preventing uh, headaches, whether post-traumatic or migraine. Additionally, things like ginkgo biloba, uh, the herbal agent that's traditionally used to treat dementia in elderly people, often can have a benefit on the symptomatology and particularly memory impairment if it occurs in association with a traumatic brain injury. So these are the kinds of things I incorporated into my practice along with consideration of cannabis treatment.
It would seem that all of those, that long list of pharmaceuticals would also have the likelihood of knocking the endocannabinoid system out of balance as well. Well, uh, we hope that's not the case, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, a lot of these drugs are not very effective and often can contribute side effects of their own. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist Dr. Ethan Russo. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll like audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, tell you stories, and teach you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer that I want to tell you about. Right now they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you'll get a free audiobook straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or download it and listen to it, you know, like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to just check out the service for free. And the service is pretty great. There are whole sections on permaculture, sci-fi, history, um, biography. Hell, you can even listen to a book about card counting and blackjack. Whatever, it's all pretty rad. 
So that's the deal. Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. And their online library of free books is pretty incredible. So just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more, or just click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is neurologist and cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So before the break, we were talking about the traditional uh, efforts that can be made after a traumatic brain injury to help bring the systems back into balance. And in, during this set, we're going to talk about cannabis as a treatment. So Dr. Russo, you know, you have described cannabis as a helpful aid in both the prevention and the resolution of TBI. In, in what are the modes in which cannabis can help somebody who is um, experiencing this trauma? Well, they're very varied. Um, first, let's let's give a little background to say that there's been extensive research done on traumatic uh, brain injury using animal models and showing disturbances in the endocannabinoid system. And this has been going on for about as long as the system has been known, uh, 20 years or more. Um, certainly, we know that there that this kind of injury produces deficits uh, in endocannabinoid function and that uh, when these deficits are rectified, uh, that there is clinical improvement uh, in the animals. However, uh, additionally, uh, beyond that, and this was known back in the 90s, um, but when I was in practice, um, I noticed in talking to patients who'd had uh, mild concussions, for example, that uh, occasionally some would come to me with the story that, you know, hey, uh, something really strange happened. Um, you know, I've been having all these symptoms, and one of my friends suggested that we smoke a joint together, and I thought it was a really bad idea, and yet we did, and I felt a lot better. What's that about, they'd ask me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I started hearing this from multiple patients. And on the one hand, uh, I guess logically, uh, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to most people because um, we associate cannabis with uh, worsening of, of memory um, and creating a high. And I guess it's illogical to a lot of people how this could help. But um, in this instance, it became clear to me that these patients were telling compelling stories about how this reduced their symptoms. A lot of them would tell me that they felt normal for the first time since the injury. They, they said that the brain fog cleared. They felt clearer. They were able to think. They were able to reduce their headache, nausea, dizziness, and all the associated symptoms that are just dreadfully persistent when someone has this kind of syndrome. It reached the point that I had to include cannabis as an alternative um, when discussing treatment with my patients in this situation and always prefacing it with, look, this is going to sound weird, but, um, and then we discuss cannabis um, and its relation to endocannabinoid function and how what we had learned from the basic science could really suggest that this could be helpful and that uh, we had a lot of patients saying that it did help them. Um, 
And almost uniformly, uh, when patients tried it, uh, they reported benefit. Uh, and certainly in the 90s, um, this, this was uh, a very unconventional idea. Um, and uh, things weren't as liberal uh, politically as they might be now. Uh, so, but um, it was very compelling. And I came to think that this was one of the best treatments available for a very difficult condition. Yeah, I can imagine it'd be very politically unpopular um, 20 years ago versus today. And I'm curious what the what you think and maybe what you thought at the time and, and maybe how that's changed over the 20 uh, years. Um, do you, did, did you think that them smoking a joint and then removing their symptoms were, were either A, a function of um, them getting support to their endocannabinoid system, or B, the fact that the symptoms that come from um, you know, ingesting cannabis actually directly relieve those symptoms kind of outside of the endocannabinoid system? Well, I think it is all related. Um, you know, if we closely examine what the endocannabinoid system does, it's involved in memory. It's involved in generating uh, headaches. Uh, it, uh, it affects all these functions, and so it makes a lot of sense. Plus, it's clear in a post-traumatic syndrome that there is a severe disturbance of homeostasis. Uh, we also know, again, from the experimental work uh, that there's a disturbance in endocannabinoid levels and thus supplementation from an external source. In this instance, uh, with cannabinoids uh, from cannabis, uh, makes a lot more sense. But it goes beyond that. Let's discuss for a minute uh, the more flagrant situation of repetitive head trauma as occurs in CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. There's been a lot of publicity about this now, particularly uh, in relation to retired football players that have developed this syndrome of dementia, personality change, violent behavior. Um, and uh, we know that uh, uh, in the brains of people who have died after having this condition, that there are some very serious changes that occur, overt scarring, um, also the development of what are called tau protein uh, disturbances. Uh, tau proteins are part of microtubules in the, the neurons of the brain. I know we're getting a little technical here, but what I wanted to mention is these disturbances closely resemble what happens in the brains of elderly people with Alzheimer's disease. And so there are some similarities between um, pathologically uh, in I'm sorry, chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, now, we also know that cannabidiol in particular seems to interfere with the development of these tau protein abnormalities. Uh, so there's a solid scientific basis for thinking that some of this kind of progressive damage that we see in these degenerative diseases, Alzheimer's on one hand and chronic traumatic encephalopathy on the other, can possibly be uh, slowed down or even arrested 
uh, with cannabidiol as an intervention. That makes sense to me. And while while we're talking about <clears throat> memory, you know, when when I was recovering from my brain injury, and I guess still to some extent today, it feels like some of the memories are now filed like just to the left or the right of where I kept them prior to the injury. Um, how is our memory filing system impacted by a TBI? And is it possible that that uh, cannabinoids could help them as well, specifically the the filing mechanism? Well, uh, it's an interesting conjecture. I think there's some basis for it. Let's explain how it might well occur. Um, Diseases like depression and post-traumatic syndrome uh, can also be thought of disorders of plasticity of the brain. What do I mean by that? Well, plasticity means your resistance to disturbance and the ability uh, to regenerate. Um, it's often been said that you're born with all the neurons that you'll ever have, um, they can't be regenerated, but we're learning it isn't quite true. Uh, it's been shown that THC and other cannabinoids increase plasticity of the brain and may lead to what's called neurogenesis, which, like it sounds, is uh, production of new brain cells. We also know that throughout life, Uh, particularly if we're continuing to learn that uh, these neurons will create new connections. That is uh, one of the fundamental bases of uh, learning and memory. Uh, So uh, as we heal from this kind of injury, you are making new connections and do things, things do come back that seemingly might have been lost to memory or ability before. And it, it seems certainly the case that uh, benefits uh, to the endocannabinoid system can help. And certainly this could come from properly applied uh, therapy with can- cannabis. So <clears throat> I want to I want to kind of nail you down on on dosage right now and I know you don't care for this part very much because you know in individual patients um respond to cannabinoids in in very different ways and and you would you would you know with any particular patient you do a you know a, a a long intake with them. But we also, you know, you and I both don't know that people are listening to this show who are dealing with traumatic brain injuries and they are self-medicating, trying to get it dialed in themselves. So with, with those caveats, um, for someone who is dealing with a recent TBI, what milligrams and how often would you recommend of THC and CBD, assuming whole plant, uh, for someone who's starting to trying to rebuild and trying to cause neurogenesis and trying to decrease the symptoms that that they're going through because of the concussion. Sure. Well, as you indicated, everyone's different, but I, I would say that the doses required for THC to help someone with uh, symptom management are usually very tiny. Uh, not very high at all, um, probably a few milligrams at most. If they were uh, smoking or vaporizing, they'd probably have to do it every few hours. But given that this is a, a subacute, relatively long-lasting condition or even a chronic one, um, 
better would be use of an oral agent or a tincture in the mouth that would last a lot longer, probably allowing dosing two to three times a day. Now, with respect to CBD, the dose allowances would be much higher. Quite frankly, only extreme doses of CBD are associated with any side effects or drug-drug interactions. Um, so certainly, if a person had access uh, to a CBD-predominant uh, preparation um, that would uh, have just a little THC and a lot more CBD, this would probably be the most advantageous. Um, but as in so many situations, I would probably recommend, uh, if they're able to ascertain the dosing, that they try not to exceed uh, 15 milligrams of total THC per day once they've uh, titrated up, gotten used to uh, the effects of the medicine. Now, again, there could be quite a range here, uh, and it wouldn't preclude that some people might benefit from more, but uh, those would be general guidelines. Right on. That makes sense. So so we're talking, you know, two and a half milligrams to five milligrams taken maybe three times a day on the THC side. You did say that CBD would, um, you know, be coming in at a much higher amount, though. Um, would Are you thinking more like 20 milligrams taking, taken three times a day? Well, it could be even higher than that. Let's mm. say we have one of the modern CBD predominant uh, chemovars. It could be that there's as much as 30 times uh, the dose of CBD. So, for example, if there were 15 milligrams total of THC a day, that would be 450 milligrams of CBD. That's a good healthy dose, and it would likely have a lot of benefits in a severely affected patient with these kinds of issues. Um, particularly if we're dealing with uh, someone who had had advanced chronic traumatic encephalopathy that uh, was agitated, uh, perhaps hallucinating or having severe uh, behavioral disturbances, um, this could really make all the difference um, and allow them uh, to look a lot more normal. This is not to say that it would totally reverse uh, the damage that they've already sustained, but um, I, I think we've all heard the stories of how difficult uh, these patients can be in the advanced stages of that disorder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> I want to hit on it just briefly. If if folks are really interested in hearing this uh, more of this part of the conversation, you can go back to episode eleven where Dr. Russo and I talk about this at length. But I want to I just want to clarify that when we're talking about CBD and THC, and you're talking about preparations, we are talking about whole plant medical cannabis preparations, and we're not talking about CBD extracted from industrial hemp that is a you know a, an isolated molecule correct? Uh, well, that sure be my feeling about it. Uh, it would be very hard for someone using one of those preparations to get the proper dosing, not to mention the risks of contamination with pesticides, etc. Um, I, what I would recommend in this situation is an organically grown whole cannabis extract with uh, proven accompanying analysis. Uh, I think that this is what patients deserve, uh, 
and uh, hopefully will be available soon in uh, more places. Yeah, I can see how, you know, it's a shame that so many people still live in, in markets where you're not able to get um, legal medical marijuana preparations and, you know, which, which creates this CBD from hemp market for them. We're going to go ahead and take another short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist Dr. Ethan Russo. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You have so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into something as deeply as you'd like. You know there is more that you could do to reach out to new customers and to encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time and you're not ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. Blunt Branding principles Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty. But they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that is pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and Anthony will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on three projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal, instead of just making me a pretty logo. Similarly, every friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. So grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience 
and generate sales while using cutting edge technology in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash blunt branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our weekly newsletter, Blunt Branding marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is neurologist and cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So uh, during the last set, we were talking about how um, cannabis in different modes can help support both the endocannabinoid system and decrease and alleviate um, a lot of the symptoms associated with a TBI and also help with the um, you know, the eventual resolution of it. Now, this next part is, is, is the part that I'm especially excited about hearing because, you know, I've heard about uh, psilocybin microdosing for a couple years now, but trying to find somebody who's willing to actually talk about it and explain how it alleviates a TBI, that's, that's a rare thing. So I'm really uh, excited to hear what you have to say. So let's get right into it. Um, so Ethan, what is the mechanism by which psilocybin from what normal otherwise people know of as hallucinogenic mushrooms, how does that work to alleviate, alleviate the symptoms of a traumatic brain injury? Well, we don't exactly know, but let's set the stage with some background. Uh, it was apparent to me actually decades ago that historically there's been a relationship between the use of psychedelics or hallucinogens and treatment of migraines. In other words, these kinds of agents, which at high doses produce uh, psychedelic experiences at low doses, were used to treat headaches. And it, it extends to the ergot alkaloids um, and a whole bunch of others, including uh, psilocybin, mescaline, for example, was used as a migraine preventive in the 19th century. It was part of uh, the U.S. pharmacopoeia for a time. Um, so these are interesting things, and this actually led me to my research in the Peruvian Amazon with the Majigenga tribe, and certainly uh, they had uh, the example of psychotria leaves, which contained dimethyltryptamine, a related uh, uh, psychedelic that's related uh, to LSD and psilocybin and mescaline. Um, this would be used as part of their ayahuasca mix, uh, the vine of the soul that's used in uh, visionary sessions. Um, but in low doses, they would drip uh, the juice from the leaves into the eye to treat a headache also to increase uh, the sensory acuity for hunting. Um, and uh, I saw this work. Um, and so there is this interesting parallel there. Um, and so, again, uh, there's this overlap between migraine and post-traumatic uh, headache symptoms. And certainly this kind of agent just on that level would seem to help. Now, what science tells us is that this kind of agent works on a thing called the serotonin or 5-HT2A receptor. But there are plenty of drugs that affect that receptor that do not create these kinds of experiences. And certainly nothing with such a prolonged or long-lasting effect like people are noting uh, after uses of these agents, even in very small doses. So there's something going on that we don't yet understand. 
Uh, we have ideas, though. It may be that these agents are increasing the plasticity of the brain, uh, much as we've discussed earlier. They are opening up pathways. They are opening up people's thought processes. Um, and it may be that they're producing neurogenesis. Could it be that they're actually creating new connections in the brain? Um, we don't know the answers to these questions, but those are the possibilities. Just phenomenologically, what we note is that many patients are getting long-lasting relief of headaches and better relief of these post-traumatic symptoms uh, in using very low doses of these kinds of agents. I guess most commonly this would be with low-dose psilocybin, often in the form of psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, right. So, <clears throat> you know, a lot of folks, they get the giggles <clears throat> when talking about um, using hallucinogenic mushrooms for this kind of patient relief because, you know, folks are just imagining, well, getting really high and, and, and having a psychedelic experience from it. Um, but we're talking about a, in a dosage amount that is, is, is lower than that, lower than the threshold than you would take to, um, have a, a hallucination. Would the patient experience anything or would it be kind of transparent to them at the proper microdose? Well, it, it could be either. Um, just as an example, a threshold dose for a psychedelic experience with psilocybin is generally felt to be about 20 milligrams. Um, at lower doses, 2.5 to 10 milligrams, uh, could vary. Uh, the patient may not feel much of anything. They could have slight nausea. Um, they may feel that things are brighter, more intense. Like I mentioned with the Machiginga hunters, uh, dripping psychotria leaves in the eye, just a heightening of the senses. But this would fade after a time and often be replaced by a persistent, calm, and positive emotion. And this can go on for a considerable length of time. Um, you may have heard of uh, some of the recent research that indicates prolonged uh, benefit on adjustment to end of life um, or alleviation of chronic anxiety from uh, this kind of treatment. So there seems to be a relationship there as well. So, <clears throat> Um, how is psilocybin normally um, measured? Because I'm sure there's folks listening um, who have had a brain injury like I have and who can't help but think, all right, well, I know where I can get um, you know, mushrooms where I live because, you know, they, they grow naturally and, and then they're going to have to, you know, look up some sort of, um, you know, you know, preparation that they're going to go with, but is, is the only way to get a, a proper dosage to, to pull it out of the mushroom into its crystallized form and weigh it? Or is there, is there a rule of thumb that, that folks can use when, as a starting place for self-experimentation? Well, uh, this is difficult. First of all, if someone's going to use mushrooms, they need to be with someone who can positively identify them. Uh, with psilocybin mushrooms, there's a certain um, 
built-in safety factor in that uh, they will notice a bluing reaction of the mushroom as it uh, as the surface is bruised, it rapidly turns blue. Uh, this is sort of a diagnostic test, but this does not replace the need for uh, someone very experienced uh, in mushroom identification. Beyond that, um, if the species is known, there are uh, written guidelines on what the uh, relative concentration uh, might be. Um, and in terms of resources, um, some of the older uh, books on this, such as uh, Jonathan Ott's Pharmacotheon, um, has uh, dosage guidelines. Uh, additionally, some of uh, Paul Stamets older works uh, online um, there would be information uh, from a couple of uh, places one would be maps M-A-P-S dot org uh, and also the Beckley Foundation dot org um, have both done extensive work uh, in medical applications of the psychedelics and specifically psilocybin uh, and searches on those websites would provide a lot more information. Um, right. Right on. So, so for folks who are listening, if you're in your car or you're running or something and, and, and you're dying to have written those written down, if you just go to the, the website at shapingfire.com and go to the episode page for this episode, um, all of those are going to be linked there. So before we move on from psilocybin, Ethan, you know, I, I guess, um, since, since this is the part of the topic today that I know the least about, cause I've spent most of my time studying cannabis and not, um, and not, uh, mushrooms, uh, I want to toss this question in there kind of as a, to mop up anything I may have missed. You know, what have I not asked you about using psilocybin to alleviate TBI that maybe I should have asked you or that you think would be good to finish off this section on? Well, I'm afraid we should really include some caveats, which, um, uh, you know, if somebody has these growing in their lawn, they're not illegal. But once you pick them with intent to ingest them, they are illegal. And they're still considered a Schedule One forbidden drug in this country, much as cannabis is. So we've got a combination of a very unconventional therapy, which, if too much is taken, is going to produce a, a psychedelic experience that the patient may not be prepared for on the one hand, and on the other hand, something that potentially could get them in trouble with the law. Um, I feel it's my duty to impart knowledge uh, about these things. I think in the future, we're going to find uh, approved medical indications uh, for both of these sets of substances. And uh, in the meantime, uh, people need to be aware of them and perhaps help with the effort to uh, see that proper research is done and uh, see if we can uh, learn enough to make these accessible to people who really need them. Right on. Thank you, Ethan. And, and during our next set, we're going to talk about the research and trials that are happening now for both of these solutions. But we're going to take our last break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist Dr. Ethan Russo. Businesses everywhere are constantly striving to reach out to people through advertising. 
We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into a relationship with their customers is essential. That is what we offer. We will explain your service or product and what sets it apart as desirable and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot, you can do that too. Because the podcast is young, but growing at an exceptionally fast rate, if you become an advertiser on the Shaping Fire podcast now, you are going to pay a fraction of the cost we'll be asking for in just a few months. And yet everyone listening both now and to the back catalog of interviews later will hear about your company again and again for years. It's a great deal for you. Pay a small amount now because the show is new, but take advantage of the huge listening audience we will have forever. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and newsletter advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So during the last set, we talked a lot about how psilocybin can be used to alleviate traumatic brain injury. And before that, we were talking about cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And as we were talking about in the last set, unfortunately, both of these treatments are still um, based on Schedule One drugs, and you know, possessing these, using them, are still um, federally illegal. Um, but we do know that that on rare occasions, the government is will give research. Um, permission to folks who want to start looking for medical efficacy for these types of um, naturally occurring substances um, so that maybe the case can be made to remove it from the schedule one like people are discussing today for cannabis. So Ethan, my question for you is, you know, are there already research and trials happening now for uh, psilocybin that there's, that there's anybody working on it? Or is it just simply how you learned about it through anecdotal evidence speaking with um, you know, your patients and, and really there's, there's not much going on? Well, uh, I don't think it's getting the attention it deserves. There have been some recent studies done with psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs, particularly at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and some uh, in Switzerland um, that have looked uh, at these agents, particularly in relation to PTSD, adjustment to end-of-life situations, anxiety associated with cancer and things of this sort. Um, there really, to my knowledge, haven't been studies of these um, in post-traumatic syndromes, uh, some in PTSD. If people are interested in this, the place to always look to see what's going on is clinicaltrials.gov. So clinicaltrials.gov. That is a government website. Um, and it is a requirement now uh, for companies doing this kind of investigation to put the information about their clinical trials that are planned or in process, to put the information on that website. And this is uh, true around the world. 
Um, so people can get an idea of what might be going on and whether there's a possibility of them trying one of these substances in the context of a clinical trial. There would be obvious advantages there in terms of uh, the legality, being in a controlled situation with experienced clinicians and all the possible backup they might uh, need if there were an emergency situation to arise. I can imagine that the military would be probably looking into the psilocybin solution as well, because I, I know they're already looking at using uh, cannabidiol in the field because, you know, having it in your system before a concussion can actually help in your likelihood of, of getting over the TBI. And, you know, those, those military folks, they've got a history with psychedelics. So I can imagine that it'd be a short jump for them to be interested in psilocybin as well, especially with that interesting little bit that you added about how uh, dripping it into the eye increases your ability to see at night. Uh, sure. I, I can't honestly see them doing this anytime soon. Uh, it just seems to be a leap of faith uh, beyond which is really likely to occur in the <laughs> near future. Uh, but one can dream. Right on. So, so we. Um, I know that with uh, taking um, cannabinoids, you know, you can have an over-medicated, uncomfortable experience that'll that'll go away in a couple hours if you take too much THC. Um, and so, so you know, you can't die from it. Um, is that also true with with mushrooms? That if someone is experimenting with microdosing, um, that if if they miss it, chances are they'll have a potentially uncomfortable, but also very possibly nice uh, psychedelic experience, but but it's not like it, it works on the respiratory system or would stop the heart or anything like that. Is, is, is psilocybin relatively safe to be working with as well? Sure. In terms of uh, actual toxicity, as you mentioned, breathing sensation, problems with the heart, liver, etc., uh, actually quite safe. The, the greatest danger is uh, bad trip, um, uh, people freaking out. But this uh, is self-limited, meaning it will pass and responds generally to talking down, so-called. Um, but it certainly could lead to uh, emergency room visits, particularly if the patient has no prior experience with this kind of substance. It's a good time to mention that no one should ever do this alone. They need a so-called guide, uh, someone who is not partaking of the substance uh, that can run interference for them, make sure that they're safe and reassured, um, and that is uh, the big best safety measure of all. Yeah, well said there. And so for folks who are listening like I am and really wanting more of these studies on, on psilocybin and even the endocannabinoid system to be going on, is as, as far as people taking some kind of action, does it do any good or is it even the right person to call your legislator and tell them that you, 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 you want psilocybin approved for, for um, brain injury research? Or is that kind of you know, is that an overbroad kind of activism? Is there a particular somebody in the government um, who would be um, um, allowing this kind of research that, that we could pinpoint our calls or contacts? 
Well, uh, as it is now, uh, some of these clinical trials are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and that can only happen if the applicant proves that the possible benefits outweigh the dangers. And that has been done, uh, both with cannabis uh, and with uh, some of the psychedelics. If people are interested uh, in this area, beyond uh, getting involved in a clinical trial uh, themselves, uh, certainly I'd recommend uh, that they join uh, the Beckley Foundation and MAPS and make con- generous contributions uh, because that is uh, the reason behind uh, these two organizations and uh, is their basic mission. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show, Ethan. Your, your experience is really valuable, and I know I'm not alone in appreciating your willingness to come out and share it with us. Well, that's most gracious. Thank you. For more information, we have links uh, to the links that Dr. Russo suggested on the podcast page for this episode at shapingfire.com. You can also reach Dr. Russo at ethanrusso.com at comcast.net but also please understand that dr russo is nearly always traveling and it may take some time for him to respond you can find more episodes of the shaping fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on apple itunes stitcher and google play if you enjoyed the show we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.